Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. In this podcast, we discuss life as a security leader and challenges and opportunities that accompany the job. Listen to our past episodes at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're joined by Cecil Pineda, CISO at R1RCM Inc. Hi, Cecil. Hey, Nabil. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Cecil is the SVP and Chief Information Security Officer at R1 Inc. But prior to his role, he held leadership positions at Critical Start, the DFW International Airport, GameStop, and TXU Energy, to name a few. He's also an active member of multiple cybersecurity organizations, such as the DFW CISO community. So Cecil, to get us started, we're going to start with a section of rapid fire questions to get to know you both as a person and as a professional in technology. All right. Apple or Android? Android. What's your Android device that you use right now? Ah, uh, it's a Samsung Note Galaxy. Okay. You know, with a, I like with to take stylus. notes. With a stylus. Okay. Yeah, I like to take notes. What is the most used app on your phone? Probably Outlook and Teams. Just like many of us these days. Yeah. First job in tech or in security? Uh, out of college, uh, I was a programmer. And in security, I started my own startup 22 years ago. If you could live anywhere, uh, where would it be? Near the ocean or the mountain or both. Is there a place in mind that has both? It's really not, you know, I mean... Texas right now. I would love to, you know, be in the coast, either West or East Coast. But uh, yeah, I would love to be in maybe Oregon or Washington. Okay. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner? All of the above. Um, I always, uh, you know, look forward for dinner. And what would be your favorite cuisine for dinner? Anything from the ocean or, you know, fish, crabs, shrimps, clams, anything. Excellent. Favorite holiday? Christmas. I love Christmas. Any specific Christmas traditions that you have within your family? We, you know, we celebrate Christmas uh, for a long time. When September hits, uh, you know, we started to feel Christmassy at home. And uh, we start shopping uh, gifts for friends and family. So I and the best day is, you know, the morning of Christmas, December 25, you know, when we open gifts. So just love the tradition. That Christmas celebration uh, probably ends around, you know, the new year. It's a very long Christmas. Prolonged celebration, but I like it. I like to hear that. What do you like to do when you're not securing R1? Either with my kids eating somewhere or mountain biking with uh, a bunch of CISOs. We go out usually Saturdays and Sunday mornings. Awesome. What was the last thing that you read? A lot of books are open. And the only one that I really finished most recently is Future Crimes. But uh, yeah, it's about four or five books that I've been, you know, opening and closing, but could not even find time to finish all of them. So what's the favorite part of your job? The challenges. I like the pace. I like solving problems. I like bringing people together, agreeing on a solution or, you know, a forward path. I like fixing things. Well, what about the least favorite part of your job? Maybe drama and politics. <laughs> to uh, my least favorite. All right. And then the last question, what is your favorite cybersecurity event or conference? I'm very biased with my conference, you know, my own CISO XC, but I went to RSA. I really enjoyed it. It's only my second time there, but looking forward for Black Hat. So I have three, CISO XC, RSA, and Black Hat. Okay. Excellent. Will you be attending Black Hat this year? Yeah. Yeah. Some of my team members will be there. Awesome. Looking forward. Yeah. 
Excellent. All right. Well, now we know you very intimately as a technology professional in the industry and a leader in the industry. So glad we got that out of the way. I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was fun. And I feel like I know you a lot better already. So it's great. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more as especially with you being a leader in the healthcare space. Are there certain areas that's more in focus for you and, and other leaders in the space? Yeah, healthcare with PHI, with regulations, with data breaches and ransomware. There's so many things, but particularly in, in our space, uh, data breach and ransomware are probably the top two things that's always in my mind. I eat and drink and I sleep. I dream about it in the morning. You wake up in sweat, you know, thinking about it. <laughs> Is there a particular reason which makes ransomware so much of your thought process on a day-to-day -day basis? Is there something specific about ransomware that makes it more dangerous than other issues? Yeah. You know, in the old days, uh, ransomware is just, you know, encrypting files and asking you to pay so they could give you the keys. Now it's it has gone beyond that. You know, they exfil the data. They want you not just to pay for the encryption keys, but they have a second ransom. They have a third ransom. Hey, you need to pay us if you want your data back or you want us to delete it. Or sometimes, hey, um, we'll publish it, pay us off. And the attack vector, the ease of delivering the attack is so easy, you know, phishing and very simple way. So it's a very difficult threat to stop. But so far, a lot of organizations have been very, you know, successful. But, you know, if you're watching um, in the healthcare space, we have a website that we follow called Office of the Civil Rights. And you'll see all the healthcare breaches there almost on uh, probably every two or three days, you'll see a new company, you know, announcing or declaring that they've been breached or targeted for ransomware, which mostly lead to data breach nowadays. Do you have any specific guidance for other leaders in the healthcare space or maybe new leaders in the healthcare space on things they need to be considering to do the basics to be prepared for ransomware attacks or some of the most common types of attacks that are out there? Well, um, Nabil, that's, a, that's probably a question that we may need a couple of hours to answer, but... <laughs> I think uh, the most important two things is basic hygiene, you know, patching, you know, network security, uh, encryption. A lot of the things we knew 20 years ago are still valid today. If we're doing the basic hygiene, we're blocking maybe 98%, maybe even 99% of threats out there. The other recommendation I would give is probably uh, knowing your crown jewels, you know, identifying all your assets, your data across the organization. You'll be surprised when you do a data discovery, you'll find them in many places that you thought that you don't have the data there, but it's eye-opening when you start looking at every place. So those two things, basic hygiene and asset and data discovery and visibility are very important for healthcare organization. I think it's also beyond healthcare. You know, almost all verticals, they should do that. You know, if I can kind of expand on something that I've observed in the healthcare space specifically, your insight would be very helpful because I haven't given this enough thought, but I'm sure you have. A big challenge you have in healthcare is when you build systems or you use software or you build tools that healthcare professionals need to use, often the focus needs to be on usability and availability, that the things need to just work and it needs to work 100% of the time and it needs to be easy. And, you know, security tends to be counterintuitive and in fact, sometimes goes against that philosophy where security actually makes it harder to use something or adds roadblocks 
box to using something or accessing something that you might need. So how do you find that balance when you're building systems for the healthcare space while keeping security in mind? Nabil, that's an age-old problem that many security people are still trying to figure out. In the early 90s, I was a programmer. I can tell you, I didn't care about security at all. I just want to make sure that my code will work. Uh, now, at this stage, in a large organization with so much data, so many users, you know, usability is so important. Availability is so important. And sometimes when you prioritize those two things, security always take a backseat. And that is when organizations pay the price. Uh, you know, when security takes a backseat, you know, behind usability and availability. And I think the best answer I could give you right now is collaboration, you know, um, partnering with the developers, partnering with your operations are key. Um, it's so hard to get security right. And for us to be able to have 100% security, which is impossible, you affect usability and availability. So I think um, having a really stable IT infrastructure with an appropriate level of security, what is appropriate, it could be different. You know, healthcare companies and financial, they have different levels of security. But I think balancing that is really the key. Um, once you partner with the right folks, once you work together with your architecture team, your development team, I think you'll find it easy to get to a point where you can actually have a good balance between all those three things. Now, it's so easy for me to say that right now, um, every CISOs today, they struggle with that. But I think we are getting better. Because I think we see all these events, these incidents, and once you lower that level of security, you see a spike in this incident. So, you know, so many people ask me, how do you do it? And I always tell them it's a balancing act. It's really a balancing act because I cannot push all my agenda. If I do that, it's going to affect everything, production rollouts, you know, all these deadlines that we need to meet and the business needs to run. So I think it's the, the right term for that is uh, CISOs and CIOs and people in the development team and other parts of the IT infrastructure just need to find the right balance. So from that perspective, talking about the leaders and the different leadership roles that we have, you know, we often run into CISOs and then we also run into virtual CISOs or VCSOs in the industry. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest difference between your role as a CISO versus that of a VCSO? Oh, I've been both, Nabil. For about four years, I was a VCSO before I went back as a CISO. And I do like both. Uh, there are a lot of pros and cons. Uh, the difficulty with a VCSO, a lot of times you're not a full-time person for the company. Uh, your decisions are taken, but they're not exactly followed because you are mostly an advisor. However, there are some instances where VCSO is really like an acting CISO. So at one point in my career, I was doing three VCSO jobs. I show up Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with one company and Tuesday and Thursday. And I like those change. The problem is when you're maintaining three organizations, yeah, I'm not that young anymore. Sometimes you forget that, oh, that was for another organization. You mix up technologies, you mix up people. You got to be very disciplined because you're helping three companies and each company have a different risk tolerance. This one, they want it really secure. This one, they just want to check the box. This one, we just want you to be there. So when something happens, we can blame you. So there's, there's not much continuity as a busy. So, but at the same time, you we were able to help organizations at a short time, you know, short term or maybe long term, you know, hiring a, a full time CISO is challenging. 
Number one, they're getting more expensive by the day. Second, the turnover is the attrition is very high. Everyone's trying to hire someone. It's so, you know, I know some CISOs barely a year in their job and they're getting offers from other companies. So, so there's pros and cons, but I love it. I'm doing it again today. It's my third time. I like the challenge. I like the continuity. You know, tomorrow it's another day. You've got, you know, all the things that I'm working on, constantly improving, constantly innovating. So in that same vein, you know, as a as a CISO, especially now that we're in the middle of the year and it's budgeting season for most organizations, are there certain metrics or data points that you find effective when presenting to the board or rest of the C-suite to ask for a cybersecurity budget or even more effective ways to communicate the value and the return on the investment that an organization is getting from their spend in security? especially given the fact that the result you get from security is not really visible, right? You don't really see yeah. any feature when you invest money or mm-hmm. you don't really see something. Hopefully you don't see anything because of the investment. Oh, yeah. But how do you communicate that most effectively? And what are some metrics and data points that you find uh, impactful? Well, it's mid-year. It's perfect time for budgeting. And today we're already seeing a lot of usable metrics that we can use. As I mentioned earlier, some organizations in the past that I used to work for, They like to look at the negatives or the threats and risks that we have. You know, you could highlight all the incidents that you've experienced. You can highlight all the risk, your risk register, how many risks you have in your risk register, how many non-compliance items in your compliance programs, how many are critical, how many are medium and low. I really like to use the program maturity metrics. I particularly love using the NIST CSF metrics, using the CMMI to measure my program's maturity. I all, because sometimes for many years, I felt fear, uncertainty, and doubt, you know, that FUD is, has been very useful, but it's not always, always, it doesn't really help me communicate to my leaders. Where am I on my program? Where are our competitors or the industry, our benchmark? And where do we want our scores to be? So, for example, in the NIST CSF, I think in the healthcare industry, I think the average for NIST CSF is about 2.8 or 2.9, if I'm not mistaken. You know, when you start your program at 2.3, how do I get to 2.8? So I identify all those opportunities. They could be people, they could be process, they could be technologies. Hey, these are the things that we need to improve so we can go to 2.8 or whatever that's industry average. Ideally, you want to target somewhere higher than 2.8 or so you're higher than the industry average. However, it gets to a point where your investments do not get the most value. So we want to make sure that we get to a point where we get the most value out of our investments. At the same time, we meet best practices where we are having a, a maturing program. You're meeting compliance obligations and contractual obligations as well. I'm curious to understand if you're using the NIST framework, right, it comes with, if I go at a very high level, it has five functions that it's really trying to describe the outcomes, right? There's the identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Curious to understand how you make the determination of which of those five need more focus or need more maturity or need more attention. What are some factors that you're using that help you determine where you need to apply more focus? You know, when, when we are measured against them, most of the time we rely on the third party. Third parties really, you know, they do this on a daily basis and they usually tell us, Hey, Cecil, uh, look at your response. You need to improve there. So 
I, I, I always take their their uh, recommendation. But at the same time, I have a very good group of generals in my team. I have a trusted team that can tell me these guys are the boots on the ground. Then most of the time, the assessments by third parties are pretty close. And on the same token, we mostly focus on those five, but most particularly the preventive side and also the response side. Yeah, you know this, Nabil. It's even if you put all the tools in the world, you got all the resources. Even if you have really good process, it's bound to happen. You know, it's not a matter of if it's it's when, and it's the respond and recover are really important. A lot of cybersecurity professionals tend to focus on, you know, on the other functions, but I think the respond and recover are really important. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if you're a CISO, you want to be able to be improving across the board because missing develop that just to focus on certain areas. I, I think all of them are important, but I think uh, if you're starting a program, where do you want to? I think the prevent side and the recover and the uh, respond will be really important. So beyond metrics and beyond actual objective data, are there other things that you've used that has worked well for you when trying to communicate your cybersecurity budgeting needs with your leadership team? Many, there's many ways, you know, without data, I think I've followed many great CISOs before me and I learned from them. And I think one of the most effective tools in our arsenal is the storytelling side. There are things that are beyond metrics. There are things you can, if you can tell a really good story, but you have to align it to your leaders. You know, today, a lot of our board of directors and senior leadership at organizations are, are tech savvy because we see it on the news. They know all these risks and threats and all these controls that are available at our disposal. So having a good story to tell from, you know, Hey, here's where we are. Here are some of our challenges. There are so many things that it's so hard to put in a slide deck. And when I'm presenting, I always try to make sure that I tell the story behind those metrics. And those stories are very powerful. And, you know, when I was a first time CISO, I can tell you, I'll be honest with you. I think I, I sucked there because I didn't know how to tell a story. I was just relying on data always. If I had the data, I thought it was enough. It wasn't enough. And. I think as I go on different companies and different roles, I, and I learned my CIO is actually a former CISO. And, and I can tell you, I, I listen to him. I watch him until now. I, I'm still amazed how he could tell a really good, good story and be able to drive people together, you know, gain support with stories. I'm more curious about this. Have recent security incidents helped you get additional budget as well? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, if you Google our company, you you know, we've been featured on Mr. Krebs and uh, those uh, past incidents have helped us gain support from our leaders. The news helped a lot. A lot of healthcare organizations are getting breached almost on a daily basis. They help a lot. And um, leaders today are, you know, you'll be surprised. They, they know, you know, what's happening out there. As an extension of this, you know, we often understand that just throwing money or budget at a problem doesn't really solve the problem. A bigger issue that we're facing as an industry is that there is a shortage of cybersecurity professionals and hiring has been very challenging. Can you share with us what you may be doing to help you yeah. alleviate some of the hiring challenges today? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I was looking forward for that one. We still struggle. They, um, I think three or four months ago, we have at least 10 to 15 openings in security. And much of the challenges are at the lower level skills, engineers, analysts, specialized skills up to the manager level. 
just finding candidates is so hard. We've posted on LinkedIn and other job boards. So for example, SailPoint. You know, we were looking for SailPoint engineer for quite some time and we, we got a lot of resumes, but probably only three or four stood out with a real sale, you know, experience that we can actually use. It took us, I think, three or four months to get this person. The numbers also are a challenge. The compensations they're looking for are way, way up now. It is crazy. Uh, maybe uh, a year ago for the same role, we'll probably get someone at 175 per, per year. And this year, they're looking for 225 to 250,000. So application security, it's so hard to find them and they're getting more expensive by the day. At the director and above level, we didn't really see any challenges there. Um, a lot of candidates selecting from the pool of candidates, probably the more challenging is a lot of good people, a lot of positives and negatives. But I would like to also point out the challenge on the salary. Everyone is asking for more than 250, 300 in, in some cases. Unfortunately, uh, the market is driving the compensation packages. Do you think the compensation is being driven more because of the shortage of supply and the high demand? Or do you think it's actually an area where organizations need to be aware of the rising prices of acquiring such resources and they just need to determine if they're going to be willing to pay that premium to get the proper resources? I think you're right. The demand is so high. The number of candidates is not as much as like five years ago. Five years ago, if I advertised for a firewall engineer, I'm getting at least 100 resumes. And a lot of our organizations here in the Dallas area, everyone's fighting for, you know, someone posted on one of our CISO uh, chat groups. And <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, everyone's looking for people and there's not many candidates out there. But at the same time, Nabil, I want to emphasize that I think part of it is really the security work in general, whether it's an analyst or even up to the CISO. It's a very demanding job. And I think, you know, the, the effort, you know, the level of work, the engagement, it's like 7-Eleven, Nabil. A lot of the candidates out there, I can do this job, but you have to pay me this much. The expectation is so high for people to be able to do their job properly. Understood. So can you tell us a little bit more then about CISO XC and in particular, any advice you have for people who want to build a cybersecurity community and do more networking in the space? Yes, of course. I'm so happy you've asked that question. Uh, where do I start? CISO XC first. We've been planning to do this for a long time, but all of the CISOs uh, around here in Dallas, we have a day job. And sometimes we work between 10 to 12 hours a day. We didn't have time to organize it. But one day about a year ago, maybe uh, yeah, more than a year ago, we decided the group of CISOs, we had dinner and we thought, you know, let's start something. A CISO organization where we organize it our own, we develop the program, we bring it to the community, and let's bring some of the proceeds to the charity. And that's what we did. And August uh, 19, last year, we had our first CISO XC in the middle of a uh, pandemic. And we were very surprised. 185 people showed up and we were able to donate 25000 to Salvation Army. We had the best experience. Nabil, we like the idea, but I told my friends, the only reason why I did this is because I want CISOs to gather and collaborate and have some parties. So it was a really good way of bringing most of the DFW's CISO here. And not just from DFW, but from Austin, from Tulsa. Um, we have attendees from all over the place, uh, Arkansas and Houston and Austin. So hopefully uh, you could visit us uh, there as my guest. We have 400 people coming in next week. 
We have about 40, 45 sponsors there. And we have the Hacker Village. We have the CISO boardroom. We have 20 talks. We have Capture the Flag. I can tell you, we have 150 books by signed by Philip Wiley. So the author is actually going to host the Hacker Village. And he's going to give away signed books uh, to the attendees, 150 books. Uh, so it's first come, first serve basis. Uh, it's powered by the community, volunteers, CISOs. Uh, we have... 14 CISO members as advisory uh, board members. I'm here working during the day. I'm chatting with you now on this podcast, but a lot of the CISOs are working hard right now to prepare for the event. The next one you said, you know, what's advice for building cybersecurity communities? I can tell you why. It's not hard. A lot of them are busy. But I think if you create a Slack channel or a chat group, create a LinkedIn group, being local helps a lot because you can meet in person. I'm a member of about four other CISO groups that are national or Texas-wide. The engagement is not very you know, intimate. The localized community are very engaged. Uh, twice a month, we would go out for happy hours and lunches or dinners. And sometimes I'll just post it there on the CISO groups. 10, 20 people would show up for those in fact, tonight I invited eight CISOs and six of them are coming for a happy hour tonight. The engagement at the local level is so good because you can meet in person, you can chat, you can organize a massive conference. Yeah, uh, I, I think find someone who can be the hub for all these CISOs. You can find a person in your community like me. Um, you know, I, I connect people around here in the Dallas area, uh, help multiple CISOs get their new CISO jobs. Sometimes in the morning, you'll wake up, hey, uh, who uses Netscope around here? Can I get some feedback? Just like 20 CISOs would provide some of their feedback or competing products. Uh, it's really good. Really, uh, it helps us with our day jobs. You know, the power of community and being able to work with others and collaborate is great. And I'm so glad you're doing that for your local chapters. Really excited to see where that goes. So one last question for you, Cecil. So we talked about your hobby outside of work. Can you share a little bit more about what you're doing, how often you're riding, and any favorite spots to go riding in? We have a lot of trails in the Dallas area, but I ride with a bunch of CISOs. Um, the CISO at uh, UT Southwestern and real-time resolutions. We go out regularly every Saturday and Sunday, maybe two to three hours. But because of the heat right now, we probably ride less than what we used to do. Uh, we ride typically 13 miles. What is interesting, you know, mountain biking is a really, it's not dangerous, but a little bit risky. And we always joke about this because all of these guys who are in the business of risk and mountain biking every weekend. But, but you know, I, I, I actually want to share we actually prepare for them. We have chest guards. We have knee pads. I wear a full face helmet. I fell maybe four times face first. It has saved my face. Um, you know, I'm already too ugly. I don't want to be, you know, all scarred up, but that face mask has saved my face multiple times now. I hope my wife is not listening to this and we, we do get a lot of falls. Uh, but you know, it's almost cybersecurity. You know, just so many hurdles, large shoes, large rocks. You go over them, you plan it. I can tell you, we could go on and on. There's so much things that we do in cyber that we also do on mountain bike riding. Behind me, I have a bunch of laptops that I bought in the Facebook marketplace. I'm building them and putting in Kali Linux. There will be 20 something student volunteers at CISO XE. I'm probably going to maybe six or seven of the machines I'm going to give away to, you know, to the lucky student volunteers so they could start, you know, doing pen tests and some open source security. Those are the two things that I do outside R1. 
That's excellent. Thank you so much, Cecil. It was truly a pleasure and really glad to hear about all of the great things you're doing, uh, both in the industry and outside of your organization as well. Hope to meet you in person sometime really soon. Yeah. Thank you, Nanginam Bielin. I hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening. If you want to join us as a guest on the podcast or have a recommended guest, please email us at podcast at netspy.com. Until next time.